You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. The biggest problem for the United States is the fact that we pay prices that are too high. We pay too much for drugs. We pay too much for hospital care. Pay too much for physician services. You just heard from Paul Ginsberg from the Center for Studying Health System Change. Stay with us. We'll hear more from him soon. In a little bit, we'll talk about how the healthcare industry will grapple with inflation and labor shortages. But first up, let's talk about mental health. The COVID-19 pandemic had a severe impact on mental health across all age groups. But children and adolescents are feeling the pressure the most. The team at Cygnus Evernorth has released multiple studies that examine the rising tide of mental health concerns among young people, including a recent analysis that found suicide ideation and attempts are both on the rise among youth, up 14% compared to pre-pandemic levels. Senior editor Paige Minnemeyer sat down with Stuart Lustig, an Evernorth executive and child psychiatrist, to discuss these trends and what the industry can be doing to address them. Here they are. Stuart, thanks so much for joining me. Um, Evernorth has put an emphasis on studying child and adolescent mental health trends of late, especially in a post-pandemic world. Um, For example, one released in May 2022 surveyed 1,000 parents about their children's mental health, and 80% reported that their kids are struggling. Um, why, Why should trends like this be alarming to the healthcare industry? Well, Paige, thanks. It's good to be with you, as always. And uh, you're absolutely right. I think this is really a challenging time for teenagers. First of all, uh, there are major existential threats that they are concerned about, right? So climate change being the obvious one. Uh, They are living through times of uh, racial injustice, political turmoil, which just continues and continues uh, war in multiple parts of the world. It's easy to see how being a teenager would be challenging. I think it's challenging for all of us, but particularly for young people who are trying to just navigate and figure out what kind of world is it that they live in, that they are inheriting. Uh, number two factor in uh, the pandemic. Right. And so the pandemic set all of us back. I think if there's a silver lining to it, it was that it was okay to not be okay for a change. Um, But for teens in particular, uh, although there may have been some other silver linings, like a little bit more sleep, a little bit more time with family, I I think we can unequivocally state that uh, it was a challenging time for for all of us, particularly for teens who are also sensitive to everybody else's stress. Even before the pandemic, and this is the part that's easy to forget, I think, is that uh, there have been rising levels of depression among teenagers for the past decade to decade and a half or so. Uh, So the past 10 or 15 years, we have seen an increase in depression, an increase in uh, suicide rates. So uh, that is the backdrop uh, as to where we are right now. So yes, the survey that you mentioned, uh, 80% of parents say that their teens are struggling uh, and of Two-thirds of those parents, by the way, also say that it's difficult to find good quality care uh, for kids as well. So this is where we are at the moment, and this is why we're so concerned and focused on on getting teenagers and their families the the care that they need. You know, you mentioned, the study mentions that, uh, you know, women or females under age 17, as well as, you know, Asian and Pacific Islander children 
had some of the highest risk for suicide ideation in the in that uh, study. You know, are there signs that might point to why those trends are or something we're seeing? When uh, COVID-19 first came about, there was a lot of finger pointing, as you remember, at the highest levels of government. This was the, the Chinese virus, as it was called, and uh, just all the Wuhan virus, right? Uh, and and Asians were really targeted. They, they were really uh, uh, victims of all sorts of uh, persecution and prejudice, uh, and discrimination. And uh, I think it's easy to draw a link to how that would have an impact on teenagers who don't forget you know, at that particular time of their lives are really going through an identity formation process. And if you're constantly being bombarded by messages that denigrate your status because you're part of a racial group or ethnic group that was in, is in some way responsible for this uh, this uh, worldwide pandemic, uh, you can see how that would really be internalized by a lot of folks. So I, I think that's a likely factor in, in, in our finding. Um, you know, kind of going back to that 2022 study that we were discussing at the outset, um, it also notes that that parents are, are really heavily impacted by these mental health concerns. So there are trickle-down effects from from the children experiencing these mental health needs. For example, you know, 18% of those surveyed said that their child's mental health needs are negatively impacting their performance on the job. Um, do you think we're talking enough about some of these ripple effects that the, the rising tide of these mental health needs is having? You know, I, I, the answer is, I think we could be talking more about it. We're talking more about it than we were before. So that's good. I can tell you as a parent myself that when you are worried about your child, everything else goes out the window, right? It's hard to focus on your job. It's hard to focus on uh, your marriage. It's hard to focus on uh, really taking care of yourself, which is probably the best thing that you can do in some ways uh, in terms of taking care of your child or taking care of your teenagers. Make sure your own oxygen mask is on first, as we always say. Anyone with a child, anyone with a teenager at home is a caregiver. Uh, we tend to think of caregivers as you know taking care of elderly parents or elderly relatives, and that's a big part of it, of course. Uh, but if you have a teenager, you have a kid, you're a caregiver. And so uh, a lot of our efforts at this point are focused on what do we build? What is the ecosystem of, of care and, and support, coaching programs, whatnot that are out there to take care of the caregivers so they can take better care of the teenagers that are in their households? Building on that, um, you know, another piece of that study was that, you know, employers could play a key role in addressing this as an unmet need for their workers and, and the parents that, that work for their companies. You know, why is that something they should be taking on? And maybe how can they think about tackling this challenge? You know, what's interesting about that question, Paige, I think, is that uh, people don't realize the extent to which people actually trust their employers for the most part. And uh, there's a uh, survey out or a, a measurement out there called the Edelman Trust Barometer. And every year, Edelman, which is a, a um, public relations firm, uh, and they do a lot of survey research, uh, asks people who they trust. And, you know, the government may move up and down, for example, businesses may move up and down, um, but people tend to trust their employers. And so there's a real opportunity, I think, here for employers to step up and, and uh, 
make sure that people are being taken care of in a holistic way in the workplace. We did a major survey on resilience, uh, looking at over 16,000 people in the midst of the pandemic that we were just talking about, and found that uh, those people, and particularly workers, so parents of teenagers in many cases, uh, who felt that their employers cared about them and were uh, providing opportunities and communicating about the mission of the workplace and making connections among employees, uh, those people were more resilient, meaning that they were bouncing back from challenges, uh, navigating towards the resources that they needed to do so in order to be resilient. You know, Evernorth found that, you know, suicide-related diagnoses are up 14% among children and adolescents when you look at pre-pandemic levels. You know, the, as you mentioned, these, these kids are also at higher rate risk for suicide attempts and, and ideation compared to other um, age groups. Could you talk to us a little bit more about some of the trends that, that you identified in that study? What was interesting about that study is we were comparing two time periods. So 2019 to 2020, that was one time period. And then 2020 uh, to 2021. So that was the other time period. And rates were up, of course, for uh, children and adolescents. So as we talked about a little bit earlier, but I'll give you the exact numbers, um, girls really are uh, in more trouble. So we looked at uh, females ages 17 and under, and uh, they had more than twice the rate of increased suicidal ideation uh, compared to males. So specifically 26% uh, versus 12%. Uh, that was for suicidal ideation. And uh, for suicide attempts, it was 33% versus 6% uh, increase uh, So compared to males. So uh, significant differences for girls versus boys. And uh, the rates overall for teenagers, those increases were higher than they were uh, for people in other age groups. So uh, adults essentially. So um, that's really why we are so focused on uh, kids at this point. And I'll say also that uh, there are many other issues that kids are dealing with right now. One of the uh, correlates of depression in kids is a heightened level of social media use. And it's not just screen time. It's actually trying to keep up with everything 24-7 going on in the world, going on with their peers, going on with their friends. Um, and all the people who are either liking or disliking something that they're doing, commenting on it, uh, leaving them out of things, uh, it's exhausting. And uh, the, the correlation with increased rates of depression, and again in girls, uh, is, is really quite striking. This study, you know, similarly mentions that, you know, employers and health plans can and, and should be playing a key role in, in tackling this issue. What do you think they can be doing to maybe help mitigate some of this rise? Yeah, well, part of this rise, I, I, let's, uh, it, it's, it's a population effect, right? Where do employers come in? Where, where do we all come in? Where do we come in as a health plan as well? Uh, a lot of that is about making sure uh, that we are addressing the needs of everyone on that curve, making sure that we have resources for them uh, and making sure that employers can offer these things through their benefits plans. So some of those may be peer support programs or coaching programs or even digital solutions such as apps. Um, but then also being sure that people who really need to get in right away with a clinician uh, are able to do so. And remember, uh, one last thing, teens are very uh, familiar with being behind a screen, right? And so uh, <laughs> the extent that you can provide something healthy with a screen 
I think goes a long way towards addressing the mental health crisis that we're seeing in teenagers today. When you when you look at this data, it does kind of make it feel like trends are really getting worse when it comes to, to youth mental health rather than improving. Do you see a light at the end of the tunnel on this? And maybe what can the industry be doing to ensure that we keep talking about this moving forward and don't kind of let it fall off of our radar? Yeah, well, I think that's a great question. And I, I think you're right, too. I mean, there, there, things do seem to be getting worse. And yet, what we've also seen in our own data is that the demand for uh, mental health services uh, has been pretty much keeping up, actually. So people are getting in. Uh, these conditions are, are more prevalent than they were before, but they are also being treated. Uh, so that's good news. I think it is good news that we have seen this uh, tectonic shift to virtual treatment. Um, it's leveling off a little bit. So uh, light at the end of the tunnel that you asked about, I think uh, part of it is that the treatment is available. People are talking about it more. There is less stigma associated with it. And certainly uh, if you don't have to, if you're a teenager, if you don't have to leave school to go see your therapist in the middle of the day, you know, miss two hours of school, and then everyone wonders where you were, um, you know, that helps if you can just you know, do this online uh, in a briefer period of time. And I think, uh, I, I suspect anyway, that the teens are more comfortable now talking about uh, talking about the fact that they are seeing a therapist. Not not everybody, but some. I think that's becoming more normalized as we are starting to pull out of the COVID health emergency. Um, there still is this mental health pandemic, um, but I do think, yeah, and I think this will take years. Um, but but I am hopeful that with the the, the uh, uh, array of services, the willingness to use them. Uh, the, the, the realization that we need to do other things for teens, I'm hopeful that we will get to where we need to be. Well, Stuart, thank you again for joining me and also, you know, leaving us on a hopeful note when we're looking at, you know, some pretty bleak data in our conversation today. Paige, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. That was Stuart Lustig with Paige Minimeyer. But before we continue with our next guest, I just want to acknowledge that March is finally over. Winter is nearly behind us. April is an exciting month. Things are changing. And for me, that means I need to set up my greenhouse and start my seeds. But for everyone here at Fierce, we can't wait to find out who the winners of Fierce Madness are. Well, I'll let you know on Podnosis next week. Or if you want to find out sooner, go to FierceHealthcare.com today and click subscribe. It's the red button on the top right. You'll get all our great stuff in your inbox. The healthcare industry is fighting inflation and labor shortages. For one thing, healthcare systems will need to replenish supplies that it used fighting the pandemic, like N95 masks and personal protective equipment. These are the input costs. And a recent report by the American Hospital Association predicted growth in input prices. And according to a recent McKinsey report, inflation in the healthcare industry will continue to worsen. And sadly, there's no end in sight to the healthcare labor shortage. That's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and others. Over 330,000 healthcare providers left their jobs in 2021, and another 200,000 left last year, mostly because of the pandemic and burnout. Paul Ginsburg is the founding president of the Center for Studying Health System Change. 
Ginsburg talked with Fierce Healthcare's Frank Diamond about how these two forces, inflation and labor shortage, will play out in Medicare Advantage. Here they are. In healthcare, there's a huge labor shortage. Some of that's because of COVID-19. A report last year by Definitive Healthcare said that about 334,000 providers quit in 2021. Some of it, as you know and you have documented, is systemic and long-term, such as an overburdened primary care system. Meanwhile, payers and hospitals must still negotiate contracts. How do you see that process, I mean, the negotiation process, playing out in light of inflation and labor shortages? Well, in the next few years, it's going to be a very unusual negotiation process. And it's all because of unexpected developments. You know, the, the substantial inflation was not expected, was not a factor in negotiations a few years ago. Um, the labor shortages, not projected at all. From the, say, hospital perspective, this is catch-up time. You know, they, if you look at uh, financial reports for 2022, they're just horrible for hospitals, physician organizations, because of the unexpected increase in inflation and, uh, and, you know, need for large wage increases to deal with later sh- labor shortages. So clearly hospitals will be looking to insurers to, you know, for substantially higher rates uh, to come. What makes it even more difficult is that nobody knows what things will be like a year or two out. You're one of the authors of a recent study in health affairs that says that from 2006 to 2022, Medicare Advantage enrollment increased by 337%. At the same time, enrollment in traditional Medicare could decline 2.9%. When we talked to you about this, when I talked to you about this, you said that the payment system for Medicare Advantage is unsustainable. I'm paraphrasing, but how so? When I talk about the overpayments, uh, there are a number of factors behind this. What's well established is first the coding issue. You know, the fact that uh, uh, the same beneficiaries uh, in Medicare Advantage tend to have more diagnoses show up on their claims. So in their risk adjustment system, they appear to be sicker than they might have appeared if they had stayed in the traditional uh, Medicare uh, program. So so that's one issue. Uh, CMS already adjusts for uh, coding differences, but they don't do it aggressively enough, at least according to, to MedPAC and, and many academic researchers as well. There's something that we're just starting to learn about, and I'm uh, completing some research on it. Uh, we heard some discussed at the uh, MedPAC meeting last week about the fact that uh, after risk adjustments, we're still getting a, a selection difference in the sense that uh, p- those people that it choose to enroll in Medicare Advantage tend to have less spending after risk adjustments than those who remain in fee-for-service. So this also leads to overpayment. So in a sense, uh, the Medicare program is costing uh, the taxpayers a lot of money, a lot more than if people 
were all in traditional Medicare. And Medicare Advantage plans are valuable. You know, they do a good job. Uh, they seem to be efficient. But we pay them so much that in a sense, it's an additional drag on the, the federal uh, budget deficit. A bidding process for Medicare Advantage payments is something commercial health insurance plans have long opposed. Do you worry that some of the big players in Medicare Advantage might pull out of the system if such a bidding process is installed? And if they, and if they do, what then? Would they pull out? No. Uh, well, first of all, you know, Medicare Advantage is the most profitable segments of the insurance business today. So I would think that they would try to make a go of it. And, uh, you know, it is, uh, it's clear that insurers won't do as well. It probably will mean there's, there'll be a shakeout. I think the weaker plans, uh, likely will exit. The stronger plans will get, will get bigger. Uh, their, their share will grow. But, uh, you know, the, the Medicare Advantage program, the fact that it is delivering value as far as it is making care more efficient, uh, you know, this means it will survive because it's producing value, even though it may not look like it is today, uh, where some insurers biting the dust and the ones that really deliver value, they will be the uh, ones that succeed the most. Uh, they will be the dominant plans in the future. The healthcare system in general. Now, uh, you've been studying it for decades. There's a lot wrong with it, but what are the, some of the successes that you've seen over the years, like developments that took place that you think could be seen as making progress toward improvement? And what would a much improved healthcare system look like? Would it be something along the lines of the uh, European models, which are, I believe, single payer systems, or would it be making our own employer sponsored healthcare system function better? You know, I think, you know, it's almost every country when they try to make their healthcare system better, it always builds upon their history, you know, what it was like. You know, I don't imagine that the United States will ever pursue a single-payer system. It's not reflective of our culture. Uh, and, you know, we have a pretty viable uh, employer-based system. And we certainly have a tradition of private plans. You know, if you look a little more closely at the European systems, there are some that are single-payer, but there are many important ones that have always been multi-payer. You know, take Germany. Germany has many sickness funds. That's what they call their insurers. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at Switzerland, Switzerland uh, actually has individual insurance coverage, uh, which everybody buys. It is mandated. This actually is one thing that uh, the United States is going to have to find its way to. You know, you can't get to universal coverage in a multi-payer system without a strong mandate. And strong mandates are typical in those European systems. Uh, in the Swiss system, if, uh, if you're not insured, you are automatically enrolled and it is deducted from your paycheck. Uh, so, you know, we're going to have to go to a mandate if we want to continue, achieve universal coverage with a multi-payer system. Uh, 
I think the biggest problem in, for the United States is the fact that uh, we pay prices that are too high. We pay too much for drugs. We pay too much for hospital care, pay too much for physician services. And this is because even in the multi-payer systems in Europe, they tend to have a single entity that is negotiating uh, with uh, the hospitals, with the physicians, with the pharmaceutical manufacturers. And that's why they have much lower prices. So I think that's going to be the, the area that's going to have to be addressed if our health system is going to not just not eat all of our resources. You talked about drug prices. Um, now, I've talked to employers, and that's what's keeping them awake at night. You know, I think there's been an enormous step forward through the Inflation Reduction Act as far as placing some restrictions on prices paid by the Medicare program for drugs. And, you know, initially the proposal was that this would apply to private insurers as well. Uh, and uh, I think one of the things left on the cutting room floor was that, you know, ap applicability to private insurers. I think we're going to have to get back there. I did notice President Biden, you know, proposing to, uh, you know, for Medicare, at least, to make the restrictions on drug prices in the Inflation Reduction Act stronger. So I think there's a path. You know, every other country in the world has found that path, uh, that, that there needs to be some type of central negotiation or control of prescription drug prices. And I just hope it's not too many years until we get there. Is there anything here that you think is crucial? about what's going on with the healthcare system in 2023 that you want listeners to keep in mind or be aware of? You know, one of the things that we need to uh, make further progress on is moving from a completely fee-for-service payment system to various alternative payment systems that use elements of per capitation, you know, of paying on a per patient per month uh, basis. And, you know, there's been progress in uh, pursuing uh, accountable care organizations, ACOs and bundled payments, uh, especially in the Medicare uh, program. And, uh, you know, what I'm long been struck by is how the leaders in various segments of the healthcare system all share this vision of moving, you know, sometimes they'll call it from volume to value, but basically they're talking about, uh, you know, instead of relying solely on fee-for-service payments, to blend in elements of uh, episodes or per capita payments, you know, to create incentives that emphasize value a lot more than is done today. I think that is the long-term direction for the system. That's and getting some control over prices, uh, you know, to me are uh, the challenges of the next decade. Thanks so much for joining us here today at Podnosis. Okay, it's, it's been a pleasure. That was Paul Ginsberg with Frank Diamond. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodson. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. 
Next week, we're going to discuss the long-term outlook and future of the Medicaid program as it begins a massive eligibility redetermination process. We'll also talk about colorectal cancer and big data. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.